So what I'm going to look at in this paper is a very distinctive type of singing, which uh, I just gave this paper at, at uh, the music department in SOAS, and they informed me that what I should be calling it is interlocked, hocketing, polyphonic vocal music. Um, but <laughs> to save myself the tongue twister and uh, to make things a bit easier, I'll call it polyphony and excuse any ethnomusicologists in the audience for that slight inaccuracy. Anyway, so Bayaka pygmies, as many other pygmy groups uh, in the Congo Basin do, sing in this very distinctive polyphonic style. And what I'm going to argue here is that actually it serves as a major avenue for cultural transmission, for structuring society, for inculcating characteristic economic, political and religious ways uh, of interacting, um, of key values such as sharing and egalitarianism, and for creating a special world of time where the deep structure of myth and Bayaka cosmology can be experienced by each generation and, in a sense, relived uh, and, and made relevant to each generation's lives. The uniqueness of this style of music, combined with its distribution among particular African hunter-gatherer groups, offers an interesting way of re reconstructing their possible shared past. And, and I'll finish on that at the end. So if uh, any of you have the good fortune to go to Central Africa, you'll find that the forest isn't like uh, the sort of forests that you get in, uh, say, beech woods or oak forest here, or even uh, the sort of monospecific teak forests that are very common in Southeast Asia, where the canopy is more or less level. And that level canopy prevents much sunlight from getting down to the forest floor. And so they're relatively free of undergrowth. In Central Africa, you have a very species-diverse forest lots of penetration of sunlight, and a really dense undergrowth in many areas. The result is that when you're walking along the floor under the trees, you very often can't see very far. So your ears and what you hear really does become uh, central to knowing what's around you. And as a hunter-gatherer, and in an environment that has elephants, gorillas, and, and many other buffaloes and so on, dangerous animals, uh, that's very important. So I just want to play you a short snippet of what it sounds like in the forest, so that you can start to understand some of the other things I'll be saying later on. Um, in particular, just try and notice how each creature seems to respect its own particular rhythm, its own particular way of doing things, and that, uh, and that they overlay each other, but each respecting its own particular style of uh, sound-making. So if you're a hunter-gatherer listening to this, it's actually telling you stuff. Um, if you think, I mean, for instance, as antelopes will feed under trees, they're listening to what the monkeys are saying. Because the monkeys, if they see a predator approach, will suddenly start their alarm calls, and the dikers who are underneath the trees will know, ah, the monkeys have seen the leopard, let's get out of here. And uh, there's all sorts of interspecies communication going on constantly in the forest. Um, and for expert listeners, and the Benjeli with whom I work are expert listeners, it's actually uh, like a conversation, and they contribute to this conversation. They will uh, draw knowledge and, uh, and, uh, and uh, information from the sounds they hear. And just to illustrate this briefly, I'm going to play you a very short snippet, which to an Benjeli would be a very clear announcement of something. And I just want to see if any of you can work out what the forest is announcing to you. Imagine you've just been uh, fishing and uh, you've been working, no, sorry, not fishing, you've just been chasing a pig 
and you've been really running for a few hours chasing this pig and you haven't managed to find him and then you hear this. Forrest is saying, have a drink, are you thirsty? All those frogs going, ribbit, 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 ribbit. Anyway, they're all sorts, and honey is absolutely one of them. The, the pitch is slightly different, though. That was actually just one lone bee buzzing my microphone as I was recording it. But <laughs> Anyway, sorry, that was uh, one of the better recordings of frogs. Anyway, so Bayaka contribute to this with their own voices, and uh, as any ethnographer, neighbour, or even a casual visitor... <coughs> Um, to a Bayaka camp quickly notices musicality pervades almost every activity from children's casual games which are generally accompanied by some sort of song um, to the use of stylized environmental mimicry um, very precise environmental mimicry in storytelling um, to the rhythmical coordination of groups of women bailing water from a stream when they're fishing or the way that people spontaneously just break into song while they're doing things, just for the hell of it, because it, it makes them happy. Women's sound mate- making is especially musical, and many of their activities are signalled, animated, or coordinated through song. When women go gathering in the forest, um, they yodel very loudly to warn any animals of their approach. As small babies begin to cry, her mother pats him firmly on the back while loudly yodelling the melody of one of the forest spirit plays. To pass time while mothers dig yams or prepare a fishing dam, small girls often wrap wooden pretend babies in cloths on their back and dance round in circles, imitating their mothers during spirit performances. During conversations, listeners interject with some expletives to accompany and enhance the musical quality of the speaker's speech. Uh, uh, Sometimes, especially around the late afternoon, as people return home from from, uh, their foraging in the forest, uh, women will sit down and they they talk to each other across their hearths. And as they sort of do this, one starts talking, the other makes sounds to accompany the speech. You create these almost birdsong-like scenarios, which are very, very beautiful. But for Bayaka, music is potent, it is productive, it has power. When the whole community set out to net hunt, for instance, women alternate a sung vowel with a blow on a single note flute to enchant the forest and to make the animals feel kwana, to feel tired and relaxed. Um, and and when, they're, when they're tired and relaxed, they're more easily caught in the hunting nets. The principle is that music enchants sentient beings, that hear it, making them become relaxed, happy, open, and from a Bayaka point of view, more easily plundered. During large group singing rituals, this principle is applied to the forest as a sentient being, to other people within the group, and to obtain goods from outsiders, such as local farmers. Music makes the farmers soft and pliable, so that their normally hard hands become generous, and they give Bayaka people the things that they ask for. These large group singing rituals are called Mokondi Masana, literally spirit play, and are a regular feature of camp life. At such times, complex interweaving melodies that interlock together into a dense vocal polyphony must be perfectly sung in order to attract forest spirits, the Mokondi, out of the forest to play with the human group. Spirit play are the most appreciated and valued musical event of the Bayaka by themselves and by outsiders.
and I'm going to focus very much on this particular side of singing rather than a lot of the casual singing that goes on, um, though of course I will mention that. But just so you get a sense of the, this type of singing, have a listen. this music I'm going to talk about three things really particularly the way it creates a shared sense of identity how it ensures the transmission of very distinctive and key cultural orientations uh, which are very crucial for successful hunting and gathering and how it mirrors and thus reinforces uh, social structure and the political order um, when talking to Bayaka people uh, about other pygmy groups, the first thing that they want to know is what sorts of songs they sing and how they sing them, and if they sing these sorts of songs. Um, and the Benjela, very quick, the people, the Bayaka are a group, actually a, a group of a range of different pygmy groups. The people I work with are called Bambenjele, but there are also Baluma, Baka, uh, Bangombe, and other groups. And the way that the Benjele will judge the degree to which those other people are proper forest people is by the extent and sophistication of their musical performances. And so... Um, when I played, for instance, uh, Mbuti music, and the Mbuti live about 1,500 miles from the Bambenjele, and they sing in an identical fashion, the Bambenjele said, ah, oh, they're Bayaka, they're proper Bayaka. And, uh, and this is slightly uh, surprising from an anthropological point of view. They speak completely different languages. Um, although they work, live in a similar environment, there are a whole series of very distinctive differences. But the music really is identical. Um, and, and that's from an ethnomusical point of view or an analytic point of view as well. Um, so they say that the, the Bambuti must be Bayaka because they sing like, like us. So why should music and ritual be so preoccupying for the Bayaka and other hunter-gatherers? Here I want to argue that it's because they implicitly recognise that performing these rituals and their accompanying musical repertoires has pedagogic, political, economic, social and cosmological ramifications that serve to reproduce key cultural orientations they consider central to Bayaka identity and personhood. If our informants are so concerned and interested in music and its performance, shouldn't we as anthropologists also be? Um, the ethnomusicologist Richard Widdis um, perceptively notes that music should be of particular interest to anthropology precisely because it is a major area of cultural knowledge that's not organised linguistically. The insights from cognitive anthropologists such as Maurice Bloch that cultural knowledge, like other expert knowledge, must be acquired, stored and recovered in mostly non-linguistic ways um, 
if it's to be used efficiently, Widdis argues, ap applies especially well to music. Now, the classic case that Morris uses to explain expert knowledge is driving. So as long as you are being told, you know, put your left foot on the clutch, put your right foot on the accelerator, stick your hand on the gear stick, and as long as you're having to think sequentially through those various actions, you will be driving dangerously and badly. And it's only at the point when you're no longer thinking about what your feet are doing and what your hand are doing and, and when it's really embodied inside you that you are driving safely and efficiently. And so the argument then goes that basically the sorts of knowledge that we have inside us that make us into the sorts of cultural beings that we are is probably uh, mostly non-linguistically stored. So how do we get at that as anthropologists? Well, Widdis, and other pe uh, Widdis in particular argues that we should think about it in terms of music. And he points out that as this is also... Um, uh, or that the methodology of ethnomusicology, which relies on participant observation to learn how to perform a piece of music in its proper cultural <clears throat> context, is very similar to the way that anthropologists remain long-term in a community to really uh, become like, or as close as they can, to those people, because they start to embody that knowledge within themselves through that immersion, through that non-linguistic taking on of those cultural orientations. And so, um, ethnomusicology, uh, both anthropology and ethnomusicology then rely on researchers sort of combining their observation with introspection. So our bodies are also our research tools. Um, it's not just what we see. So my argument will, of course, uh, be very much based on this. So it's quite a phenomenological way of approaching music and musical performance because I combine introspection with what I observe and what people tell me. So Widdis used a particular uh, example analysing the music, a particular dance of uh, Nepalese people in the town of Bhaktapur. And uh, what he notes is that there's an extraordinary isomorphism between musical, visual and conceptual patterns that are brought out in the performance of the music. I sadly don't have time to describe it all to you. But uh, what he points out is that those relationships between those different levels of meaning were never verbally expressed. But when you sit down and really try and think through the music and the performance, they become very self-evident. And what Widdis argues is that such flexibility in meaning in music is characteristic of what cognitive anthropologists have called foundational cultural schema, key cultural models that cross the boundaries of cultural and sensory domains. Musical performance involve a huge range of potential meanings and functions, uh, and from the sound and structure of the music itself to the social and political relationships that are embodied in its performance, um, or the way it refracts cultural-specific concepts, history, or identity. As such, musical styles surely are very promising candidates for the sort of foundational cultural schema that cognitive anthropologists have uh, theorised. So Widdis ends his paper wondering why anthropologists so rarely draw on music to illustrate their cultural analyses, since the highly specialised schematic structure of music, sorry, I'm quoting him, and their realisation through performance in context offer fertile ground for the discovery of cross-domain, non-linguistic cultural models and cultural meanings. So I'm going to follow this advice, um, drawing ethnographically uh, on the vocal poly polyphony of the Bayaka. 
So what I will hope to show you is that singing polyphonically and participating appropriately in these performances um, inculcate very particular cultural dispositions that are so central to Bayaka lifestyles that they are foundational cultural schema, and that's why Bayaka are so interested in them. What's interesting is that also there is, uh, once you go into this analysis, it really does seem that there's an extraordinary time depth to this particular style of music, and that has some quite surprising uh, ramifications for understanding the relationships between these groups, and uh, with genetic studies that have now uh, become more common, we're starting to be able to uh, actually date these relationships. So, first of all, learning musical systems and cultural transmission. Um, and Stravinsky in, the, in 1936 said, Music is given to us with the sole purpose of establishing an order in things, including, and particularly, the coordination between man and time. Egalitarian societies, such as those of the Bayaka, pose a particular problem to anthropologists. And this was well expressed by Ron Brunton um, a couple of decades ago. When culture cannot be transmitted from an authoritative source, how are key cultural practices and beliefs communicated across the generations? Brunton elaborated this ob uh, observation to claim that immediate return hunter-gatherers, so egalitarian hunter-gatherers such as the Bayaka, are composed of sort of random assemblages of cultural practices and that their, their very existence is extraordinary. Really, they should just disintegrate uh, and melt into the cultures around them. Um, and, and that he uses as one way of explaining why uh, this sort of immediate return egalitarian hunter-gatherer groups are so rare in the world today. But I'm going to uh, try and argue against that by highlighting the importance of participation in these polyphonic singing rituals because they engender such specific and enduring cultural dispositions which are highly suited to an egalitarian lifestyle. Additionally, polyphonic singing creates or establishes a special arena for groups within society to express themselves as distinctive groups rather than as individuals, and a special or sacred time zone in which living people connect with the deep mythical past and relive the creation of society for themselves, thus establishing it anew for each generation. So, despite Brunton's doubts, these cultural models seem likely to have an astonishing ability to pass between generations over many millennia. To do this, I'll first need some support from ethnomusicology, and Alan Lomax um, insightfully expressed the cultural inculcation aspect of music in the following way. The art of music lies in its capacity to repeat these main messages again and again in slightly distinguished forms and subtly different ways. Here, at the level of musical conversation, we enter a limitless realm of nuance where reinforcement never brings surfeit or fatigue, where the ear delights in playing with a scale of tiny differences and the restatement of the familiar is not a command but an invitation to return home. Pygmy polyphonies exploit this capacity of music very effectively. Uh, Shimha Rom was one of the main ethnomusicologists studying pygmy polyphonies, and he describes how the periods that underlie the polyphony are constantly repeated by the singers, despite the song sounding to the unaccustomed ear as if it's in constant <coughs> development. And it's, done, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's purposeful, and it's because 
different singers will be si- singing at different uh, beats, uh, different uh, uh, beat structures, so that one will be at four, one will be at six, one might be at nine, one will be at twelve, and so this creates the sense of uh, uh, constant uh, progression. Thus, the music, quintessentially simple, projects in performance the impression of complexity and perpetual development. Um, Aron developed, uh, right, he did develop early multi-track uh, recording uh, strategies in order to unpick how these polyphonies are constructed, because it really is very, very difficult for uh, even very skilled uh, musicians to, to understand how these uh, polyphonies are constructed. But what he, he uh, pointed out is that they dip, uh, each melodic module um, that constitutes the polyphony is deployed to create the impression of endless variation despite being restricted to a predetermined reth- metric, rhythmic and melodic framework. And when listening to this wealth of sounds and the melody this produces, it sounds like each voice is singing as it likes. Yet underneath, there's a rigorous musical organisation that constrains and frames innovation and creativity. It's because of each participation, each participant's inculcation of this deep musical structure um, through their cultural apprenticeship of what is appropriate to do that each singer knows perfectly which variations can be executed and when. And these processes are mutually reinforcing. By learning how to join in the song appropriately, one is also learning how to behave appropriately. By endlessly repeating this same process during regular performances, a particular Bayaka way of doing things is inculcated almost subliminally among participants. The depth of this inculcation of musical style is achieved by an apprenticeship that begins even before birth. Um, From 24 weeks, a normally developing fetus is hearing the world around its mother. Just as the pregnant mother immerses herself in the group of women singing these intertwining melodies late into the night, so too does her unborn child. The endorphins that this experience produces in the mother are shared with her fetus, creating powerful associations between the sounds heard and pleasure. This acoustic and emotional reinforcement must be very effective at inculcating both the desire to participate in singing and encouraging the development of the knowledge base on which to do so appropriately. This irregular immersion in the rhythm and melodies of Bayaka polyphony continue after birth as the baby is sung lullabies, danced along on her mother's back or sits in her lap as the women sing together in Masana, calling the forest spirits into camp. I've seen mothers dancing small babies exploiting the standing reflex Uh, long before they can walk. The baby's motor development for dancing is encouraged together with their rhythmic and vocal development. Any infant or small child that makes an attempt at musical performance is immediately praised and lavishly praised and encouraged to continue regardless of the quality of the performance rather than stopped, criticised or told to be quiet. Whenever babies or infants cry excessively... Their carer begins yodeling, even louder than the baby's crying, and often firmly pats a percussive rhythm on her back. This is surprisingly effective at quietening even the most upset child, uh, baby, sorry, and reinforces the association of the melodies with comfort and homeliness. The frequency with which I observed this uh, um, 
this, <coughs> sorry, the I observed babies and infants experiencing this intense musical involvement suggests that it is an important element of musical development. Literally having these melodies and rhythms drummed into the pre-linguistic body. This institutes a process that assures the development of the musical skills and the sense of rhythm necessary for the sophisticated polyphonic singing required during the spirit play performances. The uh, sort of implicit learning that's going on in these very uh, small infants begins being tested as soon as they begin to walk and participate more independently in music making. Now sitting next to mother, uh, or further away with other children, the infant begins to fine-tune her listening skills as she mimics what she hears around her. In this manner, children progressively acquire the repertoire of formulas that they must use to participate appropriately in the polyphony without explicit instruction. This imitation is actively encouraged with praise so the infant's further stimulated to participate. Explicit intergenerational teaching is really very rare. Rather, peer group imitation is the major avenue for the transmission of these key cultural and gendered skills. Perhaps one of the most important venues uh, for Bayaka children to learn about music uh, is during the performance of Bolu. Uh, Bolu leads directly into adult spirit play. It's like a prototype which contains all the basic elements of spirit play, except that only children will perform it. Well, all the children in this photograph are between two years old and eight-year-olds. Eight, eight year and uh, that girl might possibly be seven, but uh, it really is just for very young children. And the skill with which this performance is put together is astonishing. These very young children really are very good at this. It contains all the basic elements of adult spirit plays, including its own forest spirit. Uh, like other spirit plays, it involves a secret area where the spirit is called from the forest by the initiates, in this case boys aged between around three and eight years old. Bolu's secret area creates a space for sharing secrets and that cultivates the same-sex solidarity that's so central to Bayaka culture and social organisation. Meanwhile, similarly aged girls dance up and down in the camp singing polyphonic Bolu songs. A successful performance requires boys and girls as separate groups to cooperate and coordinate different things, but complementary, uh, uh, in a complementary way. The singing and dancing is built up, often by playing on taunt and praise relationships between the boys and the girls, until the leafy, cloth-covered spirit called Bolu is attracted into the camp. Then the dancing and singing boys must protect the girls from coming too close to Bolu um, while he dances. Keeping Bolu in the camp makes people happy, and it, this keeps the forest open uh, and generous so that food will come. The basic structure of most spirit plays makes the gender division of labour seem logical and natural, reinforcing the principle that a life of plenty is best achieved by the successful combination of gendered differences and gendered production. Men call the spirit out of the forest to the secret, secret area, and prepare it to dance. Women entice it out of the secret area and into the camp, uh, into the human space, by their beautiful singing and seductive dancing. In the same way that the raw meat that men bring out of the forest um, is cooked by women in order for it to safely enter human bodies, so the complementary activities of men and women enable the spirits to spread their blessings safely beyond the immediate group of initiates. 
And practicing bolu implicitly teaches this to children. So pygmy musical organization and social organization, the contribution from ethnomusicology. Maybe due to the mathematical structure and organization of music, ethnomusicologists have tended to express the relationship between society and music in terms of social structure and organization. And John Blacking uh, put it like this, because music is humanly organized sound, there ought to be a relationship between patterns of human organization and patterns of sound produced as a result of human interaction. In the case of this distinctive music, it wasn't until 1958 when Herbert Spencer published uh, a compendium of different uh, song and singing styles from Central Africa, and a few years later, Gilbert Rouget did another set, um, that people became aware of this style of music in the West. But it really wasn't until Colin Turnbull who uh, combined recording some of this music with very detailed ethnographic descriptions of the Mbuti pygmies in the Aturi forest that really the ethnomusicologists could start to understand what the implications of the musical style were. <coughs> and uh, Turnbull's early work was uh, really inspirational for Alan Lomax, who used a method of cantometric analysis. He basically compared, um, I think, uh, 5,500 different performances from 850 cultures spread across the world um, using uh, various uh, um, particular forms that were evident that you could listen and hear in the music. Um, and so uh, he used this to compare folk music from around the world and was one of the first to explicitly argue and demonstrate that there is a relationship between music, performance and social structure. This was only possible because he was able to compare, compare the ethnographic presentation of the working organization of the group of musicians with his abstract analysis of the music itself. And I quote from him, There's a difference in kind between the main performance structure of Western European folk song, where a lone voice dominates a group of passive listeners, and the situation in which every member of a group participates, not only in the rhythm and the counterpoint of a performance, but in recreating the melody, as in the pygmy hocketing style, a comparison of the structure of interpersonal relationships and of role-taking in the two societies, shows the same order of contrast, strongly hinting that musical structure mirrors social structure, or that, perhaps, both structures are a reflection of a deeper patterning which motivates, uh, uh, whose motives we are only dimly aware. Additionally, he considers the act of making music, of making sound, in, in, partic in particular the way that the distinctive pygmy yodeling creates by alternating between a chest and a head voice, um, a state of, of, of the most relaxed state um, when the vocal cords are, and the resonating chambers of the chest are at their widest and largest. And so I'll just quickly play you. This is just the, the yodel rather than the... And I quote from him, This extraordinary degree of vocal relaxation, which occurs rarely in the world as an overall vocal style, seems to be a psychophysiological set, which symbolizes openness, non-repressiveness, and an unconstrained approach to the communication of emotion. 
The Pygmy Bushman profile represents the most extreme case of total focus on choral integration in our world sample, and in this sense it is unique among folk cultures. The vocal empathy of pygmies seems to be matched by the cooperative style of their culture. And this is uh, from 1962, so this is quite a while ago. Lomax dwelt on the explicit contrast between pygmy and uh, San Bushman have a very similar polyphonic style, and I'll return to that shortly. Uh, Lomax dwelt on the explicit contrast between pygmy and Bushman musical style with that of the rest of the world because he argued it illuminates the rest of human musical activity in an extraordinary way by illustrating the close connection between social and musical organisation. And I quote from him, The choruses of these hunting and gathering peoples, sitting in a circle, bodies touching, changing leaders, strongly group dependent, even their melodies are shared pleasures, just as are all tasks, all property, and all social responsibilities. Whereas, uh, end of quote, whereas the more hierarchically organized a society is, the more their music is dominated by a single lead voice or conductor, by specialized and limited roles for musicians and singers, and by an increasingly passive audience. These insights into the relationship between polyphonic musical structure, modes of participation, and social organization were elaborated by John Blacking in the context of his very sensitive and sophisticated ethnography of vendor music in South Africa. Of particular interest in the context of pygmy polyphonies was his work on uh, Chikona, the national song style of the vendor, and its implications for delineating and establishing the ideal vendor society. Chikona is a polyrhythmic harmony composed of around 20 pipe players, four women drummers, and many singers, all producing different tones and whose performance is complicated by changing dance steps uh, that accompany the musical progression. He observed that polyphonies such as Chikona create a situation that generates the highest degree of individuality in, in the largest possible community of individuals. Blacking summarizes, Chikona is valuable and beautiful to the vendor, not only because of the quantity of people and tones involved, but because of the quality of the relationships that must be established between people and tones whenever it is performed. And this is something that the Benjeli are very uh, clear about as well. You can't, if people start arguing, competing, or fighting, you can't, these rituals just collapse, they break down, they cannot work. You have to have a really connected, synchronous, uh, aware group of people to make a polyphony happen. happen. Um, if you're actually in, involved in this polyphony, it's very, it, you, 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 you have to keep your own bit of the song going while other people all around you are singing entirely different things. And that discipline is actually also a sort of psychological training, a, a way of really making you feel that you're not going to get entrained and just start doing what everybody around you is doing, but you're going to stick and do what you want to do, do the bit you like to do. Um, when people do this sort of singing, there's a verb for mixing up your bodies, bosanganyenjo. You don't sit as you're all sitting with a you know, sort of little bit of space between your bodies. You rest your legs on each other. You will rest your arms on your neighbor, and you deliberately mix up your, your bodies. At the same time, you're mixing up your, your sounds, because each of you is making different sounds. And this acoustic and physical uh, mixing is actually uh, uh, produces, I mean... Uh, 
the, the sort of feeling, I guess, that good choruses uh, uh, will, will feel here, or when you go to a really good concert and suddenly it just seems to hit that spot and everyone's just blown away. That's the sort of thing people are very um, uh, uh, explicitly cultivating. And while you're making your distinctive individual melody or, or, or module, um, the other people around you are making them uh, different ones. And you have to listen to them at the same time as making your own so that you can coordinate yours properly in the ones going on around you. So you've got to really listen carefully as well as sing. And if you sing really loudly, you drown out the other people. If you sing really quietly, well, you might as well not sing at all. So there's a balance as well of, of, of getting it just right so it really contributes with the same energy as the other people uh, participating. So this independence to hold your own tune without influence from others, of course, is also a, a, almost a political training, if you think about it in the context of egalitarianism. And one of the things that puzzles some people in these societies where you have no benefit, say, from hunting because you have to share all the products of your, your labour, um, is why do people do things? Well, people do things just because they are beautiful to do, because they are internally satisfying for their own, just for doing them. And singing, I think, is one of the really important arenas where that's just brought home to you. You sing, you make an effort, and the song is just so much more beautiful. Your own uh, uh, loss in the music becomes even more intense, and so the sort of joy that you experience is amplified. So this is as much a social education as it is a musical one but it's also a political education. There's no hierarchy during these musical performances. Anybody can stop or start the dance if you have the courage, uh, the song. Um, and there's no hierarchy in the distribution of parts. There's not one part which is better or nicer or more valued than another. All parts are equal. And, uh, and actually, you know, some of the really important parts just for keeping the thing going are, held, uh, are, are mostly performed by children because they have the, especially young girls, have the real energy to, to maintain it for long periods. I mean, this photograph, for instance, uh, is after 16 hours of singing. And people have just been sitting there singing for 16 hours. I mean, it's an extraordinary stamina and strength that goes on. And anyone's free to join whichever part of the polyphony they choose. There's no obligation. You do have to come and sit with the others when this is going on. There is the, uh, the need to be together, but there's no obligation for you to do anything in particular. And what's very interesting is that if people notice that too many people are starting to sing in unison, they just automatically diverge. There's no conductor saying, oh, look, be careful, you lot. People just instantly hear it and they diverge. And, this, uh, uh, and they choose different alternative melodic modules and they choose the right moment to do them and the polyphony takes off again. And these melodic modules are actually, which are a key part of the deep structure of this music. I mean, I can't recognise these. I'm, I'm very honest about, you know, I've really uh, relied entirely on the work of these ethnomusicologists to unpick this deep structure. But I can recognise what they're saying as, as being a way of uh, it working. Um, and so this this sort of instinctive moving away of, of unis avoiding unison is actually really crucial for successful hunting and gathering because 
when you get up in the morning and everyone's hungry, there's nobody saying, right, you should all go and do this, you should go and do that, because, of course, that's an authoritative and uh, claim to status that someone would be making. Instead, people just instinctively go off and do things. And if, for instance... Um, I go honey collecting, Elizabeth goes honey collecting, and you go honey collecting, and none of us find honey. Well, that evening, we're all going to be hungry. It's not very good. So actually, what needs to happen is Elizabeth needs to go uh, fishing, you need to go honey collecting, and I need to go hunting. And then one of us will be successful, and the camp will have food to eat. So this just uh, avoiding unison is actually has very important implications for the organisation of everyday economic activities. It's a sort of unspoken grammar of interaction which is inculcated through singing. Um, and actually, it's very interesting because I, I, I was taught to hunt. I sadly couldn't learn, or I never learned to sing properly, but I learned to hunt a bit. And one of the things about hunting is that it's very predictable. As you walk through the forest, you come across particular conjunctions of natural features, and they tell you, ah, oh, this is a place that these sorts of animals use. And so you, I mean, for instance, if you see a group of... Uh, uh, a diker trails in a particular type of undergrowth you know there'll be dikers nearby so you just squat down quietly and the dikers run to you because what you're saying is come and play come and play and, uh, and they just bound out and, and join you not for long of course <laughs> and, uh, and there are other uh, uh, you know you see a, a, a raffia palms going down into a marsh you just stop and you just listen. Because you know that pigs will be there. And sure enough, <coughs> you start hearing them and you know where to go. So there are all sorts of ways that these modules and recognising the right moment to put into practice one of these modules um, uh, uh, is very useful in hunting and gathering. <coughs> and there are modules which people use uh, in relation to the farming neighbours in order to extract goods from them and, and they're very similarly employed and what's interesting is Colin Turnbull notes almost identical m modules, if you like, or practices among the Mbuti Pygmies um, right over on the east of the Congo Basin so ones which uh, I recorded among the Mbengeli 50-60 years later uh, on the uh, western side of the Congo Basin <coughs> Music structures groups. Music allows groups to uh, engage in a sort of meta-conversation. And it's a very peculiar sort of conversation which we're very unfamiliar with in our culture because we don't uh, exploit this particular uh, uh, avenue. But um, just from the point of view of the hunter-gatherers here, you know, they're living in very small groups, sometimes just 12 people in a group for months in the forest, sometimes more, up to 60 um, but then once a year in the dry season, all the camps come together for these very big ceremonies called Iboka. And uh, they're the time for arranging marriages, you know, making girlfriends and boyfriends and all sorts of social interaction. Big fights, of course, as people who've avoided each other come together again and so on. But uh, they're a very important uh, moment. And it really is the music which draws everyone out of the forest to come and participate in these spirit plays. And they go on for days, even weeks. Um, some of these spirit plays, if you start them, they have to last for three days. They, you can't just do it for a couple of hours like that. There, there's a, there are, anyway, they're a very rigorously organized set of practices. Um, 
So different spirit plays, and there are a whole range of these. I, and sadly, I haven't got time to explain the, the, the range, but I mean, there are, among Baka pygmies, for instance, in Cameroon, uh, a Japanese researcher counted over 150 different spirit plays in a, just in one geographic area. So it's a very creative uh, form, but it's also rigorously constrained by this very particular uh, s- uh, structure which I described in Bolu, the children's uh, performance. <coughs> So when people come together in this way, they actually, by depending on what spirit play they are performing, they group together in different ways. So this, for instance, is Ngoku, which is the women's spirit. And uh, it's a very rude spirit. It's a very sexual spirit. It's one which men find quite uh, shocking, because women get really strong when they do it. And, uh, and they'll sing very rude things, like... Uh, uh, we don't like old men, they're no good, or uh, the vagina always wins, the penis always dies. And, uh, and anyway, they've got a whole range of them, but, uh, and then they've got some very, very rude dances, um, which, you know, f- from our point of view may not sound it, but when it's your mother and your grandmother and your sisters and your daughters doing it, it takes on a slightly different uh, feeling. Um, and, and, of, and, of course, you know, in the secret areas surrounding this particular perform, uh, uh, spirit uh, play, women will talk to each other about the various ways they can use their power, sexuality, to stick men to them. And, uh, and they're very explicit about this and, and in teaching each other about this. Men, by contrast, we have an, an equivalent to this called shaw. And, uh, and when shaw dances, we... we terrifies not the right word but we create awe and we join up arm on arm like this in the dark of the night and this big guttural spirit gets called out of the forest and as it roars we stamp up and down the camp and the earth shakes and the women and the kids run into their huts and hide away um, and we're emphasising our power our brawn don't mess with us we've got strength and we're one so when people are grouped together like this, they can talk to each other in ways that as individuals they couldn't. The women couldn't individually say these things to men, because if they did, it would provoke a fight, it would provoke an argument. But when it's done in singing, there's no room for response. There's no space to get angry. And because the overall feeling is one of joy, it mitigates the sort of potential for friction and conflict that that can create. And in fact deals with conflicts which are inevitable when people come together. <clears throat> and there are different, I mean, there are many of these spirit plays, and each one creates a different context for individuals to identify themselves with particular groups in societies. Um, and explore those identities in that context, cultivate those identities. And when you go into these secret areas, there are all sorts of things that the ancestors have left, which uh, at first you don't know what they are, you can't understand them, but with time you slowly understand the wisdom behind them, the little teaching that was left there. They're rather like libraries, I find. And so people learn through participation in these spirit plays um, about valued attributes, about their valued attributes, how they can use their strength and qualities in relation to other people. Um, uh, and, and also the role, their role in society. So you have groups for elephant hunters, you have the groups for children, the groups for women, other groups for men, you have all sorts of different groups. But fundamentally, the basic principle is that music enchants sentient beings. Um, it makes it easier to obtain desirable products from them. And uh, 
as you noticed in that first uh, clip I played you of the forest itself, the forest is singing, in a sense, polyphonically. So it makes sense that if you want to talk to the forest, you too will sing polyphonically. And Benjela are animists, so that uh, things like forest have personhood. They're not just objects out there that you can then interact with. They're things which interact with you too. And if you take, say, Bird David or Tim Ingold's view of animism as a relational epistemology, a way of knowing things through the relationships you create with those things, then you can start to understand why music becomes so central to an animist uh, engagement with your environment. So sharing sound is a very effective way of establishing relationships. If you share sound with the farmers, you've established a relationship which then permits you to demand stuff from them. By uh, recognising personhood, persons demand things from each other. This is a demand-sharing culture, a demand-sharing economy. It's not one where you have uh, obligations to other people. You demand the things you need that other people have, and they give them to you. So in these musical performances, people are creating relationships between persons which enable them to demand things from them. So singing polyphonically, and I'll play you at the very end, a particular piece of music which will sound to you like a polyphony, which it is, but it's also calling pigs. And normally after you sing this, you go in the forest and you kill pigs. Um, and, and it's because of this, if you understand it through this uh, uh, relational epistemology, way of knowing things through the relationships you create and uh, your right to demand things from people that you have a relationship with, then you can understand why this music is effective. <clears throat> now, this is a really important part of what music does. It creates a special world of time, a sacred space. It frames uh, almost a, a, a dramatic space in which things which would normally be considered impossible or ridiculous suddenly become serious, meaningful, and, reson and resonate with you in different ways. And, uh, and I sadly don't have time to explain how this particular ceremony does this, but by performing in this ceremony, and especially during the initiation ceremonies, each generation of Mbengelia is effectively reforging the pact between the women's group and the men's group which established society in the first place. Uh, the creator, he initially put women over in one part of the forest, didn't tell them about men, put men in another area of the forest, didn't tell them about each other. And their coming together is, uh, uh, is what's relived re in, in these initiation ceremonies and makes each, each individual uh, a party to that pact which established the society that people live in today. <coughs> so... In addition to being the locus for the most sophisticated polyphonic singing, the performance of these spirit plays forms by acapersons persons in a very um, particular way. Bodies successfully performing in the dense polyphony experience what Bayaka consider to be desirable emotions, uh, ideal relationships, and they participate in an optimal learning environment <laughs> that promotes lifelong learning based on peer-to-peer uh, mimicry rather than instructed learning, with its concomitant implication of authority and hierarchy. It's also a, ri a ritual system capable of communicating with the forest as a whole, of bringing people together in greater numbers than any other event, of enabling different groups within society, men, women, children, elephant hunters, and so on, to explore their particular qualities. Um, 
and strengths while also enabling them to communicate as a group with the rest of society, or between camps, or with non-Bayaka, with outsiders such as the forest spirits, or their farming neighbours, or Europeans that happen to visit. In speech, only one person can speak at a time, and people must take turns for comprehension to be assured. During the polyphonies that accompany spirit plays, many people are able to speak at once and be understood, as their polyphony of vowel sounds weaves them densely together. This creates the context for establishing conversations between groups without the need for a leader or a spokesperson. The audience here is not just other people, but crucially, the forest itself. At heart, a dense Bayaka polyphony is talking forest by mimicking the forest sound back to it with a distinctive aesthetic. And that's the same with the mimicking the, the antelopes or monkeys, their whole uh, crocodiles, buffaloes, <coughs> and so on. Though this Bayaka musical tradition is claimed to be vulnerable, uh, as Brunton argues, it's actually surprisingly resilient. Here the resilience emerges from the way culture is learnt rather than the content of what is learnt. It's a fluid and creative process of revelation and rediscovery, where the emphasis is on style and method rather than the results that are passed down the generations. In effect, the strategies that have evolved through practising spirit plays get thoroughly tested by each generation and freely innovated upon as necessary. Maybe part of the reason that so many observers have remarked that Mbengelia and other Bayaka groups are in cultural decline is because they look at the products of culture rather than the processes by which these products emerge. It seems to me more useful to understand Bayaka tradition as a process, as a distinctive way of doing things, rather than, the, than simply the specifics of what you do. The spirit plays products vary greatly due to this internal dynamic of intensive creativity, of redundancy and transformation. Yet they maintain a structural and stylistic coherence that appears to be extremely ancient. Maybe the combination of constancy in structure and style with creativity in output offers a partial account of why non-linguistically organised foundational cultural schemas can be so resilient. If content is to be meaningful for each generation then it must be able to flexibly adapt to new contexts. So foundational schema have to be able to frame the way people act and think rather than determining what they do or say. Otherwise, they won't be able to cope with change and they'll become irrelevant. It's precisely this structural and stylistic continuity that is the subject uh, of uh, ethnomusical, uh, ethnomusical analyses like those of Grauer uh, and Lomax, and the time depth of these analyses suggests that uh, this really is an astonishingly ancient tradition. In particular, a recent paper by Victor Grauer combines insights from the work he did with Alan Lomax in the 60s on the Cantometric database with recent genetic analyses that uh, show the connections between different groups. And he makes a very interesting observation about the difference between language and music. Music seems to exist in a realm of its own, a highly ritualised realm filled far more with redundancies than with explicit messages. Unlike language in which novel utterances are continually being produced, music tends to repeat the same utterances over and over again. Language may be seen as a force for change, while music seems to operate as a conservative force, continually reaffirming the individual's connection to the group 
their common ancestors and their collective origins in, the myth, in a mythic past. And to illustrate this, Grauer cites some of the many examples, excuse me, cites some of the many examples where people lose their language and other aspects of their culture, but maintain their musical styles. The persistence of African elements in music composed, enjoyed and played by Afro-Americans is probably one of the best-known examples of this. But even more striking is the remarkable homogeneity of vocal style among North American First Peoples, regardless of language, subsistence economy or environment. Since these populations are thought to have diverged shortly after entering the continent around 10,000 years ago, this suggests that the particular vocal style is at least 10,000 years old. So Grauer applies this same principle to the similarities between the musical styles of the San Bushmen and of Southern Africa and the pygmy groups I've been discussing. And he points out how other musicologists have recognised this extraordinary similarity despite these very different geographic regions, radically different languages and so on. And... Uh, and, and, and that this you know, is very surprising and not being able to explain it by contact because obviously these groups haven't been in contact for a huge amount of time. Um, but new genetic research has started to show something different and, and uh, Grauer quotes uh, this from Chen, uh, geneticist. Biaca pygmies have one of the most ancient RFLP sublineages observed in African mitochondrial DNA and thus they could represent one of the oldest human populations, and that the Kung exhibited a set of related haplotypes that were positioned closest to the root of the human mitochondrial DNA, DNA phylogeny, suggesting that they too represent one of the most ancient African populations. With the genetic evidence strongly suggesting that Bayaka pygmies and the Kung San are descended from the same ancient population, and now I quote again Grauer, it's not difficult to infer that the almost indistinguishable musical practices of these two groups may well date to at least the time of their divergence from the same population, a period that could, according to the genetic research, date to at least 76,000 years ago, but possibly as much as 102,000 years ago. Now what this implies is that the practices and orientations that are inculcated by participating in this vocal polyphonic tradition could be the vestiges of a very ancient human culture. This interpretation is supported by the contemporary political and economic similarities between the Kung and the Bayaka pygmies that were central to, for instance, James Woodburn's famous characterization of these as egalitarian immediate return societies or systems. So the implication is then that vocal polyphony must be amongst the oldest musical traditions of humanity and that the cultural orientations inculcated by singing in this way are not only very efficiently transmitted through it, but remarkably well transmitted. If the interpretation presented here is justified, then <coughs> this is a human tradition that has been so valued and meaningful to over 3,000 generations of human beings that key aspects of its form have been successfully transmitted and enjoyed for dozens of millennia. Oh, yeah.